0: You are listening to Uncommentary. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, It's heartsandmindsbooks.com, and when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention uncommentary, uh, on some books, you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation, but when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check them out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come, come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's hearts and minds books.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time and then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you and he can handle it. Uh, right there through your email, and uh, it's really, really encouraging to him, and so I encourage you to check him out. So over the last number of years, I've uh, become very aware of the criminal justice system in America and the way things uh, play out are oftentimes the result of unintended consequences. Uh, Not always, obviously, because when laws are passed, The intent is if people break these laws, they're going to go to jail at some point or they're going to be sentenced to something, a fine or something like that. Uh, But what I was not aware of is uh, some of the history of how we got to this concept of law and order. I'd always kind of traced it back to Richard Nixon. He ran on that kind of platform uh, to separate himself from his Democratic opponents so he could get the vote of people who were concerned about uh, society and breakdowns and all those kinds of things. What I didn't realize until I started reading uh, god 's Law and Order was that that predates Nixon by a substantial amount and actually goes back into our country's uh, earlier history, but certainly the the history of the last century is uh, is prominent in that and so um, it was important to me to uh, kind of get a mind on where does evangelicalism play into this where does my own uh, root my 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 own movement roots from my life uh, play into what I understand about how America's legal system functions the way that it does now, and uh, the evangelicalism's response to this concept of law and order and prison and prison ministry and those kinds of things and how they're related to each other. So my guest today, Aaron Griffith, is going to talk about that. He's an assistant professor of history at Sattler College, not to be confused with Sadler College, which may not even exist anywhere except in my mind. And he's the author of God's Law and Order, The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America. And he is with me today, live, well, at least during this recording, he's live from Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Aaron Griffith, welcome to Uncommentary.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So uh, I want to let you know that this is a subject that has been uh, on my mind for quite some time. Um the whole concept, I guess I got started interested in it personally uh, when I started realizing about racial sentencing disparities. Um, and so I've just kind of had my mind in this area for a while. so when your book popped up, um, I immediately wanted to to get it and thank you for being here. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who uh, Aaron Griffith is?
1: All right. Well, uh, again, thank you for having me on here. It's, it's really wonderful to be here. Um, so, I uh, teach history and uh, history of Christianity, American history uh, at Sattler College, which is a small Christian liberal arts college in uh, downtown Boston. Um, And I'm originally from Alabama. I grew up in North Alabama and then went to Wheaton College for my undergraduate training and then on to Duke for my Master's of Divinity and then my doctorate. And uh, I have... For a long time, been interested in American religious history, the influence of Christians in American public life and mm-hmm. politics, and specifically evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been so many amazing books that have been written and, and work that's been done uh, for now, I guess, decades about the influence of American uh, evangelicals in politics and culture and uh, public life, and. I remember, you know, the first time I started digging into that work, uh, I was just like, this is the kind of stuff that interests me and that I find fascinating, um, both academically but also personally, Mm -hmm. Um, and because it helped me make sense so much of of what I had seen growing up and what I was uh, still experiencing, you know, not only as someone who is in the academy, but someone who attends church Mm -hmm. and hangs out with Christians, and uh, yeah, so I um, got into thinking about as I was in grad school uh, you know, you got to write a dissertation when you're a doctoral student. And I was trying to think about what I wanted to to write about. And the, I realized that there were a ton of amazing books on the history of evangelicals and I'm covering all different kinds of topics. Mm. And yet I was also seeing um, that there were, increasingly a lot of wonderful books and a lot of wonderful pieces of journalism and just commentary on racial disparities in the criminal justice system. As you mentioned, the growth of prisons, uh, what Michelle Alexander called the new Jim Crow. Right. And I started to wonder like what those two, what these two things had to do with one another. What did um, the history of evangelicalism have to do with the history of what you know, some people call the carceral state, uh, the the growth, the massive expansion of, of prisons, of um, criminal justice systems in the uh, in the United States um, in the 20th century. And I I started digging into this um, during my I guess earlier in my master's program, but then ended up writing my dissertation about it, um, and then eventually revised that into the book God's Law and Order. Uh, but the to understand maybe even better who I am, there's a personal side to this. Um, I, When I was in mm-hmm. divinity school, um, I was also involved in prison ministry. Mm-hmm. And I was attending um, a church and working in a church where we were trying to figure out um, how our church should relate to matters of crime mm-hmm. and punishment and ministry to the incarcerated. Um, and it was a very it was becoming for me like very clear that the church needed to be thinking about these issues um in some ways already had been thinking about these issues but that there was a lot of room for historical uh for historical work to be done to, to help the church and thinking through what its mission should be where we've been before what we've done wrong mm-hmm. what we've done right um and uh yeah so that that's the personal side of it for me and and i i still am very um interested in that, that personal side of things. I'm someone who still really tries to, as as best I can, connect to ministries that are working in prisons, um, to people who are personally engaged in justice issues. And and for me, I think that that, like for many people who write on, uh, mass incarceration, um, there's a personal side to it Mm -hmm. as
0: well. Yeah. So, um, I recently referred to your book along with, uh, Kristen Dume's book and Kevin Cruz's book as historical colonoscopies for the evangelical <laughs> movement. And, yeah. um, yeah. and by that, uh, I, the obvious metaphor I do mean, but, uh, also I'm talking about the fact that if we refer back to Mark Knoll's famous statement, the scandal of the evangelical mind is there isn't much of an evangelical mind. Um, That we are ignorant, not just of our own religious history, but we're ignorant of what our positions and policies that we've supported have done in the culture in which we live, because our focus is on right doctrine, mission, uh, you know, ethics that uh, affect us personally, those kinds of things. And far less reflection as to, okay, for the period of whatever, 1950 to 1960 or 1960 to 1970, evangelicals stood for X. And as a result of X, this happened that, oh, wait, that was not a great thing. But now we're 50 years later and possibly repeating the same mistakes because we don't know our history and what some of the outflow of that history has been. So that's one of the reasons that I wanted you uh, to talk about your book, God's Law and Order, The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical yeah. America. So set the stage for um, how this affects us today. I know it goes all the way back to Leopold and Loeb, who a lot of people know the names but don't know the connection to what we're talking about. So yeah. set that table for yeah. us.
1: Yeah, So, so I think like a great way into – this history is actually by looking at, at what's happened over here over the last few years in in our nation. Um, and even just looking at, you know, someone like Donald Trump. Um, and I, I actually end the book with uh, the, the Trump presidency. And I think that there's some, some once we look at the current scene, then it maybe helps us take stock of where uh, some of the, the tensions and the, the challenges of, of that the past um, mm-hmm. can present to us. But Donald Trump is someone who was the self-proclaimed law and order candidate. Right. You know, this is something that he ran both of his presidential campaigns, you know, constantly trumpeting law and order, holding up this specter of of crime, whether it's crime within um you know, uh, urban areas. Whether it's the crimes that he alleged. you know, he said that immigrants mm-hmm. are bringing into this country, and and it was clearly just highly racialized in character. Mm-hmm. The way he's he was doing this, um, and he was someone that also courted white evangelical voters mm-hmm. and received a lot of their support, uh, in both of his uh, presidential runs, um, and yet. Donald Trump, in the midst of his presidency, became someone who also became. He was uh, pretty outspoken about the need for criminal justice reform. Um, In 2018, the First Step Act was passed, uh, you know, with his signature, which was um, a fairly modest piece of criminal justice reform legislation on the federal level. I mean, it was, but it was something. (laughs) Activist. It was something, and he uh, realized that this was something that he could. Uh, garner support from um bipartisan support Mm -hmm. uh, on as an issue and he at the uh this most recent rnc um he even you know as he's hailing this passage of the first step act and the kind of work he's done um on criminal justice reform he you know brings out as an example a man who had been incarcerated who comes out and speaks of his own support for the um the the first step act. And this is not only a man who's been incarcerated and has turned his life around, he's also become a Christian while he's
2: in prison. Mm-hmm.
1: And these kind of sentiments, the presence of highly punitive, highly racialized law and order, along with some sense of the need for reform of the system, that there is a problem in the system, the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. and the presence of white evangelical support and conversionistic narratives, Mm -hmm. that all is going on right now. (laughs) And uh, that is very much what this history um, that I chart in the book is trying to deal with. Mm. All of those aspects, Um, not only of punitive law and order politics, but that's it. That's definitely part of it. Not only prison ministry or prison conversions, although that's a part of it, not only criminal justice reform, Um, But the way all of that works together, often arising in the same churches, from the same leaders, um, in the same publications uh, in evangelical America. But I want to also make one other point um, here, that uh, this is perhaps one of the trickier dynamics of the present day. And it's something in the book that I tried to do that was maybe one of the harder harder moves to make in the book and if we are looking at the present scene we look at someone like trump and we see what he stands for with regards to criminal justice but then we can also look at someone like joe biden um and joe biden is very much uh historically a law and order candidate right um he is someone that you know vocally supported various uh tough on crime legislation and right the, eighties and nineties. Um, he has, even though he has, uh, become much more, um, aware and willing to talk about inequities, racial, um, and economic inequities related to criminal justice. He's still someone that he's not going to say he's going to defund the police. Mm-hmm. He's still someone that is, is very much wanting to garner support from pro, uh, law enforcement, um, parts of america and i think this is actually a key to understanding not only the history of evangelicals and criminal justice but of american um, criminal justice more generally That, that it is often a bipartisan story it's often a story of consensus yeah that liberals and conservatives actually see eye to eye on a lot of this. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's an, and, a, there's an
0: agreement that uh, amongst uh, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives that uh, we just want criminals to be out of our mind and out of our midst. So let's, let's get them off the streets and into the prisons.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a high degree of confidence in law enforcement mm-hmm. to be able to solve our problems. There's a, um, a sense that and we see this in the coronavirus pandemic right now that on um, prisoners are at the bottom of our list in terms of our public priorities. Yeah. Um, and this is not just an evangelical conservative story. This is not just a conservative story. This is a, this is an American story. Mm-hmm. And really this is what um, in the book I try to do, show throughout this history is as evangelicals are making these moves, as they are developing, you know, what I call God's law and order, they're becoming more American. (laughs) They're not cutting against the grain of American um, political consensus. Uh, They are actually, um, it it is key to their, um, their engagement in the the mainstream of American politics and culture.
0: Yeah. I would argue that the American civil religion moderates every version of, uh, of a religion that is, within the American boundaries, whether it be Christianity or Islam or animism or whatever, Judaism, whatever else, that because we're a melting pot, that the civil version of all of those religions eventually rise to the top and the uh, more strident versions that you might see in an all-Muslim country, for instance, um, get pushed down and moderated because it's the civil religion that brings America together rather than Christianity,
1: yeah yeah and this and I'm glad you use the term civil religion there um it's you know that's a a term that I think can we could interrogate in a lot of different ways, but that's one of the reasons why i begin See, you're already book.
0: wanting, to, you're um, already going to law and order right there you want to interrogate the term that I just used
1: yeah <laughs> wow that uh <laughs> is more true than you know the way this kind of language is is even just part of our yeah um, yeah part of our culture yeah uh, I this is why I tried to begin the book a lot of histories of mass incarceration criminal justice in, in you know modern America begin in like the sixties mm-hmm. you know or maybe even just in the eighties you know with the war on drugs or sort of law and order the law and order presidency of Nixon and um, I took a cue from some amazing scholars of the carceral state like Naomi Murakawa and uh, Marie Gottschalk. And I realized like we have to start this story earlier Mm. because if this is a story, as you say, of civil religion, of evangelicals entering into that civil religious uh, discourse and um, framework, then we should go look at this, where this religious consensus um, was, was truly forged. And that is in my view um, in earlier in the 20th century. Um, And I, that's where the book begins is is with the, uh, the interwar period where Protestants, Catholics and Jews are speaking with, are becoming much more interested in crime as an issue of social concern Mm -hmm. and are developing In very different ways, but on some level, developing a united front against crime and labeling it as a problem of secularization Mm -hmm. and saying that there has to be this American religious response to this uh, to this problem. Um, And you mentioned the Leopold Mob trial. Um, So I I, literally the first part of chapter one is about this trial that occurs um, in the mid 20s. Um, where two uh, University of Chicago uh, undergrads um, commit a really gruesome murder, and they are put on trial in this very public uh, it's just this sort of trial of the century kind of Mm -hmm. um, spectacle. And the trial becomes this site of all these different debates that are occurring in the 1920s, about psychology and about higher education and what maybe you know should we blame higher ed for what leopold and Loeb did Mm -hmm. um but i see it also as a debate about crime about what should we do with you know people who commit acts like this Mm -hmm. um should they not only how should our society punish them and there are some religious Uh, leaders who want to give them the death penalty there are some who do not but also how do we even understand why they did what they did did they do it just because they're simply evil because they made a clear choice to commit some sinful act Um, it certainly seemed like it Uh, but you know other religious leaders were saying things like we have to look at the broader context like what were they reading Mm -hmm. how were they raised what kinds of trauma did they undergo as children? Um, and I really tried to show how, even in the midst of all of those differences of interpretation of Leopold and Loeb, and it was very strident, um, uh, you know, the disagreement, that disagreement that was occurring, there is this broader, uh, bigger story of religious awareness of crime as an issue of, of um, social concern. And, uh, and that to me is the context where we have to then understand not only evangelical influence in criminal justice in the following decades, but, uh, American understanding of, of crime and punishment for the remainder of the 20th century.
0: This is Marty Duran. I'm talking to uh, Aaron Griffith about his book, God's Law and Order, the Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America. And we'll be back right after this. So I want to tell you about a couple of books that I've received, actually three uh, that I've received since the podcast was on hiatus, and uh, recommend that you check them out. I'm not, I haven't read them all yet, but they were sent to me for review, uh, and I haven't had a chance to actually review them, but I'm going to bring them to your attention in case you might want to check them out. One is called Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In by my good buddy Trevin Wax, who's now a VP at Lifeway Christian Resources, and uh, Follow Your Heart, You Are Enough, You Do You. Trevin examines a lot of these kinds of sayings that have arisen in our culture, and examines them in light of Scripture. And this book is called "Rethink Yourself." This is a good discipleship work, so I want to encourage you to take a look at it. Uh, also, from Billy Hollowell, "Playing with Fire." This is a book on uh, a modern investigation into demons, exorcisms, and ghosts. So, um, if you're if you're the scaredy cat type, you might want to pass this one by. But if you're doing some study on spiritual Uh, spiritual warfare, or if you've always been interested in ghosts and what the Bible says about those kinds of things, the spirit world, uh, check this out. It is uh, Playing with Fire, A Modern Investigation into Demons, Exorcism, and Ghosts by Billy Hallowell. This is published by Thomas Nelson. Uh, Then a big old honking book called The First 100 Years of Christianity, an Introduction to Its History, Literature, and Development uh, by Udo Schnell. Uh, This is a fantastic-looking book. Again, I haven't gotten into it, but this is the very kind of book that I would reference over and over again in sermon preparation. It's many hundreds of pages long, about 650. Uh, The first 100 years of Christianity, not only about theology, history, literature, and development, Udo Chanel. And I uh, t- hope you'll take a look at that one. That's from Baker. It is an academic type book, so it's not cheap. But if this is your kind of thing, uh, I encourage you to take a look. Don't forget to check out Hearts and Minds Books with my buddy by- Byron Borger. And uh, you can find them online Hearts and Minds Books. And you can order through them. Uh, mention uh, on commentary podcast. And if they're able to give you a discount on a specific book, then they will do so. They can't get every book, but man, it is good to work with a local bookstore and encourage them and keep them in business. Okay. So um, we have pulled in and there's a consensus around uh, kind of uh, crime being a result of secularization. So there's this kind of unity of uh, religious opposition. Then uh, to crime um, and the growth of it, uh, I guess, which they they kind of uh, isolated or located in some inner city contexts or urban contexts, and then in the gangster contexts, which I guess were prevalent mm-hmm. during that time. I know that because I watched The Untouchables. Um, and so, uh, and so, then you have out of that policies begin to develop. And one of the things that you say in your book, uh, you say it in the introduction, then you uh, you repeat it again. I think in chapter two is this idea that in order for uh evangelical slash religious uh movements in America to have broad influence, they were going to have to take the right approach to law and order or to crime because that's what was going to get them, for lack of a better term, a seat at the table temporally. So in the moment, if they took the right position on crime, it would position them them to have a broader influence in American culture later on, which was to me just a revelatory type comment because it pieced together a bunch of things for me, uh, following, but what happened regarding, I mean, I know that there's a, there's a Billy Graham influence somewhere. So what happened kind of, uh, with evangelicals coming out of this period that makes it kind of our story?
1: Yeah. So the, um, the, the point you just made about having a seat at the table is, is, is right on. And I was really, you know, everyone should go read your, uh, post about that on. Oh, thanks. I'll put that <laughs> in the episode the, notes. on the, on, <laughs> on the, uh, the col- the colonoscopies of evangelical history, which, uh, is, is a very interesting term. It was, it's a particularly, uh, it's a great term for me because my father is actually a gastroenterologist. Yeah, so he's from right. that does colonoscopies <laughs> a lot. So it was glad I had a point of connection there with dad. Um, but I, uh, yeah. So before we get to that, we might say the seat at the political table. Um, What I do in the the second chapter of the book is look at the ways that that early 20th century consensus on crime uh, as an issue of concern, how that helps to frame post-World War II, early post-war evangelical um, outreach. And I look at people like Billy Graham, who begins his ministry uh, with this organization called Youth for Christ. And Youth for Christ is—it's in some ways, you know, just trying to evangelize young people. But a lot of what they're worried about is delinquency, juvenile delinquency, mm. um, kids running around and causing trouble. And uh, you know, some of the the language that Youth for Christ and other youth centric um christian organizations would use at this time was actually pretty over the top you know they would talk about like teenagers on the rampage um and 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 uh, and, uh that oh, kind man. of language though it, it showed how this is not simply about just another segment of the church that we're trying to reach mm-hmm. there's this sense of of worry about youth crime, Mm. that that crime is something that young people are going to be doing if we don't preach the gospel to them. So these evangelical organizations are really concerned about youth. And, uh, you know, I tell the story of, of Billy Graham, but I also focus on, uh, people like David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson is this Pentecostal preacher from rural Pennsylvania who Winds up in New York city because mm-hmm. he reads in a, a magazine about um, some youth that are on trial for a murder um, in New York. And he famously travels to New York and has this dramatic confrontation in the courtroom where he tells the judge, you know, I'm, I'm here to help these boys. And uh, the judge kind of, you know, dismisses him, and he becomes this laughingstock of the courtroom uh, and of, of the city for a couple of days but he sticks around and he develops a ministry um, eventually called uh, Team Challenge, yeah. um, which is, uh, you know, eventually becomes a drug rehab uh, ministry, but initially is focused on gangs and mm-hmm. delinquency. Um, and Wilkerson goes on to become a celebrity because he writes a very famous uh, book that sells millions of copies called The Cross and the Switchblade.
0: Yep, remember it well.
1: Um, which is... Yeah, and it, it's this book about ministry, not only urban ministry, but uh and the, the sort of remarkable stories of God's um work in uh in New York. But it's a story about crime. It's a story just as much about the switchblade as it is about the cross. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do in this chapter in, in chapter two is show how this early post-war evangelical um approach to crime, matters of crime and delinquency. uh, They are inheriting this broader civil religion, you might say, from the earlier, earlier in the 20th century. But remarkably, what is missing as these evangelicals like Graham and Wilkerson um, and some others that I read about people like Jim Voss, who are also doing urban ministry. What's missing from their work is any, sense that crime is something we need to uh, respond to with punishment. Mm. They don't really talk about policing. They don't really talk about getting tough or cracking down or law and order. Instead, they talk about love, talk about forgiveness, and talk about reaching out and conversion. They absolutely think crime is a problem and delinquency is sin. But for them, that means that what these boys need, what these kids in the city need, Is Jesus Mm
0: -hmm. instead of jail?
1: I, yeah, exactly. And and this is something you know—they're—they're not radicals. They're not anti-police. They aren't saying that we don't need discipline or that you know that the police aren't important or or anything. Um, They—I would think you know—in some ways they still remain punitively minded, uh, but they are not really that interested in the law and order Mm -hmm. stuff uh, at this point in the late forties and fifties. And this is something that surprised me in my work or my research. Like I didn't really expect to find this. Um, but I felt like it was an important framework to introduce that evangelicals were undoubtedly captivated by crime and they were very scared of it. Mm -hmm. And it could be this very, uh, simplistic rendering as to you know what crime even is you know even just using the the words like teenage rampage Mm -hmm. uh you know shows how hysterical it could be and it also could be highly racialized um you know wilkerson graham uh, and others are undoubtedly seeing the cities uh as the sites where crime is most prevalent and those are the places that need to be ministered to, um, and that they are not at all addressing issues of civil rights or of racism or of racist practices around, like you know, you know, redlining right. or anything mm-hmm. like that. Any of the problems that are persisting in the cities mm-hmm. that are causing uh, residents of color tremendous problems. Um, but I, I think that there's. It's important for us to realize like that there was not that much interest in punishment at this point. Um in in sort of the public evangelical uh mind, we might say. But then that shifts, and that's the subject for the next couple of chapters in the book. Um and this is where I think the the seat at the table, as you said, uh is really uh really important. Mm. Um evangelicals over the uh course of the 60s and 70s. Um, as they start getting more interested in politics, uh, as they start getting more interested in, um, public influence intellectually, uh, in charting out their own positions on social issues and political issues and not just simply talking about evangelism Mm -hmm. and conversion, they have to start taking positions on things like the death penalty, um, on tax rates, uh, Yeah. Tax rates on, uh, but not only that on criminal procedure on, uh, how we should understand what courts are doing on civil rights. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I try to show how part of having that seat at the table, um, was, uh, evangelicals started taking more punitive positions, not only, you know, theologically and intellectually, uh, but they also started lobbying for passage of, uh, of, of laws and for um, p- more policing as a way to solve these problems of crime that have already been you know, per- perceived as problems for a long time. But the way that they want to respond punitively is, is actually uh, is a new development in the sixties.
0: Is that, is that related? <clears throat> is that related to the, Uh, political syncretism where, uh, so was the tail wagging the dog here where this isn't a bunch of pastors go to the old Testament or whatever, and decide we need to be more stringent, more punitive. Was it, Hey, we're for law and order. Uh, society says, well, for law and order means we're doing this punishment, this punishment and three strikes are out. And then evangelicals say, okay, then that's what we need to support.
1: Yeah, I, I think it was both. Um, I'm going to give, that's a very uh, typical academic answer. It was, it was complicated. Um, no, uh, but I I think you, you can see both. There were, there were a lot of evangelicals who would say things like, yeah, I just go to the Bible and I see, you know, passages in the old Testament and the new Testament that lead me to believe that uh, we should support the police or we should be pro death penalty or we should be tougher on crime and that's just, it is what it is. But there were also times, and and this was significant for me to see this time and time again, um, where there were evangelicals active in politics who would acknowledge that their faith was one founded on forgiveness of sin Mm -hmm. was one that ideally held out hope for prisoners for those who had committed um, wrongs and evangelicals time and time again would say, that's fine. That's good. I believe that. Um, I believe that Jesus forgives sins, but I also believe um, that we need to be safe. Mm -hmm. And I think you could see both of those, those sentiments. Um, Some people, and, and probably most evangelicals were some combination of the two. It was not this outright rejection of their faith necessarily, but there was a sense that simply simple conversion on its own or forgiveness of sins or or what have you was not going to be enough. And this is where, um, in the book, all of this culminates in a particular institution, the prison. Mm-hmm. And this is what I talk about in my, uh, um, fifth chapter is how prisons become a place where evangelical can, evangelicals can realize all of these sentiments at once right because prisons are a place that are theoretically about public safety mm-hmm. about addressing crime with the state uh but they're also sites of conversion for evangelicals Captive audiences. Yeah, they're ca- yeah, and and that word ca- that phrase captive audience was used by evangelicals. Like wow. I saw that used multiple times. Um, they're places where incarcerated people can hear uh, or can feel convicted by their sin and can uh, choose a new way of life and um, become become better. They can be converted.
0: In your, in your and, study, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, interrupt right here with a question that you may come back to yeah. if you want. But in this, this um, desire or this press to uh, have an evangelical witness or a gospel witness in prisons after having created or helped facilitate, I should say, the circumstances that contributed to a rise in prison populations, were evangelicals ever like, hey, we probably should step back and think about all the people who are getting sent to prison who aren't even guilty of anything, somewhere between 1% yeah. and 7% or something like that. Or uh, maybe uh, maybe some of these people shouldn't be in prison to begin with. Maybe you know, if you steal an apple, it really isn't worth going to jail for seven years. Uh, was any of that thought taking place, or did that arise much later, or have evangelicals ever really given serious thought to that?
1: Yeah, um, I think a lot of throughout the law and order years, uh, that more critical side was present, certainly. Um, And often it wasn't because evangelicals had this profound sense sense of skepticism regarding like, you know, the criminal justice system or a sense of like structural inequities. It was usually because they knew somebody that had gotten, um, you know, had a really bad experience. Okay. <laughs> like well, who that's, had had that's one my of my story
0: pretty much. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that, that is a, um, that is certainly the case with evangelical prison ministers, people who are not that, at first really all that critical or critically minded, I should say about of about prisons or the carceral state, but then they go into prisons and start doing work there and they can't help but see the problems. You know, they meet people in prison who are innocent. They meet people in prison who are maybe even guilty, but shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. Uh, They meet people in prison who are, maybe even incarcerated for very serious crimes, um, it's making them worse. It's making them um, suffer mm. in a way that's, uh, you know, on any standard as problematic. Mm. And I think prison ministers w- realize this, but it, it becomes hard for them to know what to do about it. And, uh, you know, in part because of the question of access, like this is a a perennial challenge for anyone who does prison ministry is if you want to go do prison ministry, you can't alienate yourself from the administration. (laughs) You can't become known as a problem. You can't uh, get on the bad side of the the superintendent or or the warden or or whatever. Um, That means you can't protest. You can't um, raise hell uh, about, problems within the prison and uh, that is a big problem for evangelical prison ministers who or any kind of prison ministry prison chaplains themselves um, who are employed by the state uh, cannot easily become activists um, they cannot easily be critical and and the person who I think probably more than any in the evangelical world who charts a new path here and this is who I talk about in the last Chapter of the book is Chuck Colson. Mm-hmm. Um, Chuck Colson has a uh, is was a Nixon political uh, advisor. Um, is caught up in sort of the broader Nixon administration, illegal uh, <laughs> illegal behavior, mm-hmm. um, and he himself is incarcerated. Colson goes to prison in Alabama, actually a federal prison in Alabama, and spends several months there, and it's awful. It's a minimum security facility. It's not even like, you know, one of
0: the the really bad, (laughs) not even Rikers Island or something.
1: No, but he realizes how bad it is Mm -hmm. and how meaningless his life is there. And like how the the sort of just everything about it is destroying him psychologically. And, um, and he knows that he's not even going to be there that long. And he looks around, he sees all the guys who are in there who are, you know, dealing with profound issues related to their sentencing, or they don't even know like why they're in there. Like they didn't get adequate representation and Mm -hmm. trial, you know, all these just, he's personally seeing all these problems with the justice system. And Coulson's first response is the sort of standard ministry response. Like I'm going to, he himself has become a Christian um, actually right before he goes to prison. But after he leaves, the prison he says i'm gonna you know preach the gospel to these guys um, i'm going to try to help them have uh the hope in jesus that i have mm-hmm. um, but he realizes that that's not gonna be enough like he needs to do reform work um to try to make a change and this is i, I think the most important part of colson's legacy is not so much the ministry he does but the way that he introduces within the evangelical mind and then i think Really, into conservative politics more generally, a skepticism of the criminal justice system's ability to uh, actually be just. Mm. And for Colson, this is a totally conservative argument. He's going to say, "What do conservatives not like? They don't like big government. Right. <laughs> and there is nothing more bi- there's nothing more big government than our justice system. like mm-hmm. it is inefficient. It is bureaucratic. It uh destroys individual uh agency and accountability and um and it's often and just so right or wrong. He... Yeah, yeah. And uh for him, you know, this becomes the way that he frames his criminal justice reform work throughout the rest of the nineteen the eighties. And I, I see this as uh informing perhaps the turn the I mentioned um at the beginning earlier in the interview just about trump's you know how trump can be both Mm -hmm. a law and order president but also talk about reform Mm -hmm. and i think colson really is the one who introduces that reformist impulse here uh in the 80s so
0: well aaron griffith is the author of god's law and order the politics of punishment in evangelical america and i highly recommend it i think you said yesterday that as of this recording, anyway, uh, Harvard Business University Press or Harvard Press has it on sale, um, and then it's That's on right. sale currently at Hearts and Minds Books. That's and heartsandmindsbooks.com, where you can order and right. mention uncommentary in your ordering blank. Um, so, Aaron, uh, man, great to have you. Thanks for the work that you're doing, and um, everybody buys, book, and read it.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Marty. I really appreciate this. Um, Thanks for the work you do. And uh, I want to just mention real quick. um, Hearts and minds is I actually found out about hearts and minds through this podcast.
0: That's the, that's uh, the ticket. That's what I'm talking about.
1: I, uh, I I buy books from them all the time. Now, Um, Byron, there is wonderful. So um, Byron, I believe he's still offering this, but he's actually giving, Uh, Anyone who buys my book, uh, he's given 20% off. So please uh, reach out to him and, uh, yeah, mention this podcast. But, uh, yeah, I would uh, love to have people read it. And feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. Um, You can also visit my website, uh, AaronLGriffith.com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com. uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh Soledeo Gloria. This is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.